many hours away from me, actually, but um, the dedicated uh, podcast host that he is, he has called in. Steve, how are you doing suffering down in the Outer Banks there? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not fair that you even ask me, man. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm assuming uh, a lot of people listening to this are on their commute to work. I know. It's the morning and they're headed to work with a cup of coffee. I'm in, I'm in day five of two weeks at the Outer Banks. We're in the northern end near the town of Kerala. And I'm sitting right now in a really beautiful beach house that happens to be owned by some friends of ours. They let us stay here really cheap. Oh, nice. And I'm looking out at the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, it's, it's a bit of a cloudy night. We had a little rain tonight, but beautiful time down here, man. So it's unfair that I rub that in. <laughs> That's okay. You know what? The way I look at it is, uh, you know, many of us had our uh, breaks and getaways over the summer. So this is just uh, this is just your vacation right now. So yeah, um, mine is late. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you. Uh, you know, because we got so many uh, hurricanes and. Uh, threat of hurricanes coming up. We are recording uh, the week of Labor Day. So Monday was Labor Day. We're actually recording uh, Wednesday night. This podcast will probably release either Thursday or Friday. It depends on you know what I've got going on with schoolwork and things like that. But are you being affected at all? Or is there talks or weather reports or anything about the hurricanes coming up into your area at all? Or does it all seem pretty clear right now? Well, the owner of this this house who lives in Bel Air, Maryland has been watching the weather keenly for me. He's been coming down here for 40 years. Uh-huh. So, uh, he told me, uh, you know, don't pay any attention to the weather. There's a whole lot of hoopla. Uh, but since this is such a big storm, like the biggest ever recorded in the Atlantic, the highest winds that is, yeah. and it might come up this way. We might get evacuated. Okay. The owner said he was evacuated five times in those 40 years. Oh, and it's wow. a disaster when you do because the traffic is just so slow and unbearable getting out of here. Yeah. He said just wait six hours after the evacuation order and then leave. Oh, okay. But um, it, there's a chance we're going to have to hightail it out of here and find a motel somewhere inland. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, hopefully it'll, be- uh, it'll pass you by and you won't have to uh, – won't have to disrupt your uh, your vacation at all, and um, yeah, I hope not. Yeah, and you said you've got your uh, your son and uh, his family coming down there to visit you as well, right? Yes, our second oldest son, his wife, and their five boys. Man, they have five boys. They've been. I had four boys and a foster son. These guys have five boys. They're going to bring the noise. They're going to light this place <laughs> up. So. Uh, my peace and quiet is almost over. They're coming at midnight tonight. Oh, that's that's great. You'll have a great time with them, though. So exciting. Oh, yeah, big time. Um, so want to, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of funny, Steve, because, you know, a little bit of a behind the scenes with the podcasting thing, it has been over uh, a month since you and I have actually laid down a podcast. We, we stocked them all up so that we could still release one a week, but it has been over a month. Um, I know that I am excited to get back into the rhythm and flow. You know, I, I tend to, to miss it um, when when I oh, go for too. long gaps without doing it. So it is so exciting yep. to be back in. Uh, great topic that we're going to talk about. I'm going to introduce it in a moment. But first, I want to give a shout out to Mission Aware, our um, ever faithful long-term sponsor, Mission Aware. So many great products for you to check out. I have been wearing the crap out of my shirt, the Post Tenenbaum Lux After Darkness Light, and I have gotten so many comments and compliments on that shirt. Have you really? Yeah, yeah. People just love it because, you know, there's there's the interesting thing where they're looking at it, and the Latin is is what catches your eye the most. And 
So people read it and they kind of look at it and, you know, it's a great opportunity to just, you know, tell them, hey, you know, this was actually the battle cry of the Reformation. And I turn around on the back and I have the verse from um, Peter on there. You know, he has brought us out of this darkness and into his marvelous light. And I have that verse on the back. And so, um, you know, it's just a really great you know, thing, uh, shirt that I can wear out. And it's not, um, it's not like those old cheesy Christian shirts. This actually has a cool look to it. A friend of mine the other day was like, man, it looked like a beer shirt for a minute. Uh, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's just a Is really cool, what's that? That's a test. It looks like a beer shirt. Absolutely. That's uh, that's what you know. That's what we go on. So, um, you know, check out Mission Aware not only for great apparel, but they also have great moleskin journals. Um, you can get our logo on moleskin journals, Yeti mugs. Um, you know, when Greg was on here, he was. Uh, talking up the Yeti mugs like crazy, and we're going to promote those in a little bit as well. Um, but just so many great products, and we've got, you know, it's September right now, but believe it or not, Christmas is right around the corner. Um, and so you can start, you know, looking at different gifts. I have so many different gifts that I'm planning on buying for friends and family off of Mission Aware website. So check them out. Check out the These Go to 11 page and pick up all your great Mission Aware products. Um, so, Steve, we are. Uh, dropping the bomb on this podcast, talking about a topic that I feel like, uh, well, I actually just talked about it. I was just on uh, a podcast uh, called Rethinking Revelation with Travis Finley, talking about um, eschatology. Did more of a kind of an interview thing with him, really didn't drop down my thoughts and opinions too much. A lot of that stems from being the host of this podcast um, I tend not to drop a lot of theological opinions. I may do a few more on this one, um, but I think, uh, you know, for the most part, it was, you know, it was a fun podcast, had a great time. We're going to see about having him on again or maybe hosting something with Chris Date. But we are talking about end times, eschatology. And this whole, uh, these last two weeks, Steve, we had been releasing our top 10 books. We put those out for people to see, and you and I said we really wanted to do a new segment. And so kind of transitioning into this, what is the book that you recommend that you would like to highlight? I'd like to do that. Let me say first, I've gotten a lot of feedback from folks who listen to this podcast on the top 10 book thing, uh-huh. which really thrills me. I was afraid, you know, we hadn't done that before, and I was afraid maybe people wouldn't like it as much. But uh, folks I talked to, they were really thrilled about it. So oh, nice. I am... I am happy to mention a book which will um, introduce us to the whole theme of eschatology and time events, the last things. And uh, I'll betray my position as I introduce this book. I'm really <laughs> happy with the book, and it presents the amillennial position. Uh-huh. So for the hearers who aren't up on this, there's premillennial and several varieties of that. There's postmillennial and seven var- several varieties of that. There's amillennial, and that tends to be pretty much one variety. Um, so there's pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, and then there's windmill. (laughs) Windmill means, I don't know which one, man. I'm blown about by every wind of eschatological doctrine, so I'm always changing. That's windmill. That's right. That's right. Uh, Um, (laughs) but, uh, the book I'm, I'm suggesting is ah-mill. By the way, each one of these positions, you notice, has the millennium, the mill part in it. And the whole subject is, when does Jesus Christ return to earth? relative to the millennium. Does he come before the millennium, after the millennium, or is this whole time the millennium? Uh, that's the whole subject. 
By the way, uh, I'll get to the book soon, but one of my seminary professors used to drill into our heads, uh, just in case you're going to write it down, millennial has two L's and two N's. I thought you'd want to know that. Nice. Two L's and two N's. So spell it right. Uh, he drilled it into our heads. If you if you didn't spell it right, you got marked down. <laughs> the book is the book is uh, probably the best known book in the past. I don't know, fifty years, uh, presenting the amillennial case, and it is by Anthony Anthony Hokema and titled "The Bible and the Future." So I, I was uh, I was saved at seventeen from a complete and total pagan background, no religion whatsoever. And I was saved into a dispensationalist, fundamentalist, premillennial, pre-tribulational church. And uh, that's all I knew, so that's what I held to. And then I went off to a uh, an offshoot seminary of Dallas, Theological Seminary. Dallas is the big premillennial seminary. So is John MacArthur's seminary, the Master Seminary. They're like the two bastions of premillennialism in the U.S. and in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that was the only position I knew. But then I started reading books with other views and the other positions, and when I got to this one by Anthony Hokema, The Bible in the Future, it really convinced me, and I became an Amil. Nice. So there's the book. Very cool. Now, uh, Steve, let me ask you, um, just kind of starting off, because you know this is really one of those hills that Christians will die on and not only will they die on they'll rise from the dead again just to die on it again um it maybe is, mission aware can make them a t-shirt for their position <laughs> that's right <laughs> um but but let me just ask you you know in your in your topics in your you know discovering in your studies how i mean how important you know and we we sometimes throw this question at the end but i want to throw it at the beginning how important would you say this is um, to to the gospel and understanding the gospel, just kind of an establishing. Here is where I rank this thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, this is anticlimactic. We're going to do a whole podcast on the topic that I'm about to say doesn't matter. It <laughs> <laughs> doesn't really matter. Here's what matters: all Christians, all Bible people who have a high view of Scripture, take it seriously. All Christians believe certain facets of eschatology, and we hold them uh, together. So we all believe there will be a second coming, there will be a judgment day, there will be heaven and hell, there will be a resurrection. We all agree on those things. Yes. Um, But now the timing of some other things, that's where we, we split it up. And you know what I really say? Like, it doesn't matter, because if you live long enough, you're going to discover what it is. You'll, folks, you'll all become Amil if you live long enough. That's right. <laughs> All right, you uh, might not. Maybe my position's <laughs> wrong, but if, if Amil is right, you're all going to discover it. Or if pre-mill is right, you'll all discover it. Post-mill is right, we'll all discover it if you live long enough. That's so right. So it doesn't really matter that much, and it's not one of those subjects we ought to fight over. Yeah. Which, by, by the way, in, in my pre-mill background, and one variety of that is dispensational pre-mill. Maybe we'll get into that later, what that means. And yeah. All that. But as, as a dispensational pre-mill guy... Uh, one of the huge tenets of that position is uh, they they say, well, we take the Bible literally, like we take the 1,000 years in Revelation 20 literally. It is a literal 1,000 years. It's not like an amillennial says figurative for a long period of time. No, they say we take it literally. And seriously, this is what I was taught, man. If other groups don't take the Bible literally in Revelation 20, the 1,000 years, 
Where else might they not take the Bible literally? And every other view became highly suspect. The holders of every other view became highly suspect. They don't have a high view of Scripture like we do. Yeah, yeah. Which was bogus, of course. You know, it's bogus. Sure, they have a high view of Scripture like you do. Yeah. Uh, but we we were really taught, and the people really believe that th- this is the view, and if you don't hold it, you're kind of a bad guy. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, man, I, I object to that. Yeah. Strenuously nowadays. Uh, pick the view you like, just so you believe Jesus is coming. There's going to be judgment. There's eternity. It's going to be re- going to be a resurrection. Pick which view you want. I don't have a bone to pick with you. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because I remember and, and even now, uh, you know, there are, there are churches that I am aware of, you know, and, and really, you know, I. I say something sarcastically, but, you know, within every bit of sarcasm, there's always a bit of truth. Um, You know, really, churches love to build their whole theology around. um, I I find, you know, that even even more dogmatic than the whole discussion of God's sovereignty um, at times, this will become an even greater issue for a lot of people. And I is like the litmus test. Yeah. Yeah, and I find that so funny. And I wonder, Steve, if you can talk to um, maybe a little bit, having uh, switched views and and you know done uh, some more research and study. Why is it that you think that this is an issue that that people are willing to hang their hats on and just you know say, look, you know, we're drawing the line in the sand here, and you know, you've got to you know. And, and it's funny because I look at certain statements of faith. And really, you know, I can go down and I can hang with a lot of statements of faith, you know, and you get to these one issues. And I've heard this time and time again. This isn't just me. I've heard this from other people where you get to this this position on eschatology, on end times, and you kind of look at the person and you're like, you know – I I agree in the in the fundamentals in in the essentials of the end times that Christ is coming back that there is going to be a final judgment there's a heaven and a hell you know and you can go down and you can agree with the fundamentals and but you're like eh, I I don't really know if it's you know pre post or uh, mid and you know I I I really you know to me I, I it's not a big deal and people will hang you for that in some cases. Um, and oh, yeah. can, can you talk to a little bit about why you think there is such a severity when it comes to that particular issue? Yeah, uh, I, again, I think it's uh, it got started in that the, the big proponents of uh, dispensational premillennial theology uh, believe that if you hold any other position, you are suspect because you are not interpreting Scripture literally. Mm. They recognized that there are figures of speech. Uh, when Jesus said, Herod, that fox, they know he didn't mean Herod was really a fox. Mm-hmm. When Jesus said, I'm the door, they know he wasn't a, a big wooden object. Uh, so they recognize there are figures of speech. But when it comes to eschatology, they said everything has to be interpreted literally. And if you didn't see, you're, you're playing fast and loose with the Bible. Yeah. So it became a litmus test of your view of the Bible and do you take Scripture seriously and are you trustworthy? Then what happened is, just the view that this is important got passed down. People today might not know that's why it became important. It yeah. became important because it was a view of Scripture. Yeah. It was a fight over the view, a view of Scripture. People today just uh, live in the shadow of that fight, and they believe this is a, a huge issue and it's a litmus test. You know what, though? I think uh, 
you know, I'm, I'm 63, brother. I'm 63. I've been around this thing for a while. Uh, back in my earlier days, eschatology was way more of a big issue in a lot of churches and a lot less now. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think to a certain extent, um, you know, some of the examples that I'm thinking of now that you mention it um, are probably some older, more established churches, you know, the pastors, you know, the con- the average age in the congregation, you know, might be, um, you know, pushing past their 60s. And so, yep. you know, um, so I guess, yeah, I think I think you're probably um, probably right in that case. Um, although, I, you know, I think, unfortunately, uh, something that can be said of, of many churches is that, um, you know, you almost tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know, in, in many churches, you throw the uh, essentials out with the non-essentials, you know, so nothing becomes mm. important and relevant um, anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you know, it, it's just, it's so funny because I, you know, I just so clearly remember, um, you know, growing up in, in churches and again, this being an issue. Um, but I guess, you know, I guess looking back, uh, you know, really the last time that I encountered this as uh, an issue was probably, you know, closer to 15, uh, plus years ago. Um, and really haven't heard a lot about, you know, the, you know, people being more dogmatic on this and, you know, this particular topic. Um, so Steve, same wondering... here, like from a pastoral vantage point, yeah, lots yeah. of people visiting the church over many years, lots of visitors, lots of guests, lots of guests. And, you know, they want to check you out a little bit. What's your theology? What do you believe? Nobody is ever asking me, are you premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial? Are you yeah. dispensational? Are you pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib? What are, no one asks those questions anymore. Yeah. And I Whereas bet those, those might were... have been like, like a fundamentalist church in the 1960s might have had that on their billboard out front. Right. Dispensational, pre-mill, Ryrie study Bible, you know, <laughs> yeah. Bible-believing people. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of a, a thing from the past. Yeah. Now, I was wondering, Steve, if you could, um, if you can remember. So, you've been at Trinity, um, what is it, twenty-two years? Man, I have no idea. Let's see. Since ninety-five, and it is no longer Trinity. It's Cornerstone. Oh, that's right, way. Cornerstone. Thank you. Anyway, <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I mean about 22 years. So can you remember a time early at your days at Cornerstone, formerly known as Trinity, um, when people would come in and ask you about that? Or do you have to kind of go back even further to when people No, we'd have to go back further. Okay. Okay. So you have to go back way further. Gotcha. Interesting. So maybe you could talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, so you told us where you, you know, you came from in terms of, you know, growing up in a dispensational pre-millennial background, and now you've uh, changed your views. Um, talk to us a little bit about that. You know, what what kind of convinced you to change your, your thought process on the way you view the end times? Yeah, well, really, um, so again, saved to 17 at 18. Actually, the day I turned 18, I went off to a Bible college mm-hmm. and uh, did four years at that Bible college. It was, uh, it was, uh, Dallas Theological Seminary theology through and through. So we cut our eschatological teeth on Lewis Berry Schaefer, uh, Ryrie, Walverd, Pentecost, you know, those guys. Those yeah. were the big authors. They were the big names. They were the big dogs. Yeah. And uh, we believed what they taught. But I was having some issues when I would read Scripture, like some parts of Scripture didn't seem to line up. 
but I was kind of keeping it quiet. And in fact, you know, I had motivation. If you didn't hold to that position, you were not going to graduate. Oh, That's wow. how serious they were. You wow. hold this position or you don't get our diploma, uh, our degree. Then I went on to their graduate school, a three-year program to get a Master of Divinity. And uh, same deal, same eschatology, same stuff. Uh, but I had even bigger questions. But, yeah, I was able to say, all right, I haven't changed my view yet. I'm still pre-male. Uh, and they, they graduated me. Then I was free to really read what I want. And, you know, you've done seminary anyway. Now you can study what you want. You couldn't <laughs> in seminary. You had yeah. to read what they told you to read. So now I can read what I want to. And I started reading other books and other positions. But really, really, it's scripture, man. It was just scripture. I mean, like, let me read you a little part. First Corinthians 15, the great resurrection passage. And Paul says there's going to be a resurrection. But uh, uh, as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. So Paul's ready to set out the order. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, if he's dispensational pre-mill, you'd expect him to say, you know, first there's going to be this church age, a parenthesis in God's program with Israel. And then there's going to be a seven-year tribulation period. There's a rapture before that, and blah, blah, and so on. Each in his order. Here's Paul's order for the resurrection. Mm. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Boom, you know. Wow. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every other rule and every other authority and power. So Paul, like he's setting out eschatology in this whole chapter, and if uh, Charles Ryrie, if John Walvoord had written this passage, if John MacArthur had written this passage, he would have said each in his own order, and then he would have gone through all the dispensational stuff and all the dividing up sections and times and so on, seven years and thousand years. There's none of that in Paul. Yeah, yeah. It's the same thing over in First Thessalonians. It was actually First Thessalonians that troubled me first. And, you know, he teaches a lot of eschatology in First Thessalonians, a little bit more in Second Thessalonians. But he just says, uh, uh, we believe Jesus died and rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will break with him those who have fallen asleep. But this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For here's what's going to happen. Look to the future. Here's what's going to happen. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Mm. Wow, there's no, you know, first the church age, then a rapture, then a seven-year tribulation period, then a thousand-year millennium with Christ on the earth, ruling and reigning, and then, you know, the last day. No, no, he passes all that. Yeah. But he's laying out of this eschatology. So it was really scripture. Just the more I looked at scripture, I thought, uh, none of this stuff makes sense. Paul yeah. didn't teach this. The apostles didn't teach this. John didn't teach this. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because I remember, um, you know, I grew up in uh, a fairly um, free will environment and really wasn't forced to grapple with um, God's sovereignty and the implications of what that meant um, in terms of, you know, full predestination and all of that until I was a teacher. And once I became a teacher, it was my students, and I've said this on this podcast before, it was my students who actually, 
got me really looking at it. I mean, I could, I could argue with the best Calvinists in the world. Um, and I could, you know, I could really just pull out the argument and I could, you know, ram it down their throats. I was, you know, uh, egotistical and arrogant in everything that I said and did. Um, and it was getting to teaching and being a teacher where none of my students were, um, reformed and did not really think of and, and, and believe that idea of God's sovereignty and predestination. And so I was like, man, I'm going to, I'm going to have to take up the other side and argue this so that I can, you know, show my students the other side and ended up really just looking at scripture and seeing, um, and, and God really using that to show me, uh, you know, Oh wait, no, God is sovereign in all things, even salvation. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, and really I, yep. I feel like, you know, if, if as believers, we are reading, uh, scripture and, and just looking at scripture, reading it within the context of what's being said, not throwing our own views and interpretations in there. And I, and I know that's easier said than done because we all love to read scripture with our own uh, thoughts and our own biases and our own views. Um, and we love to read things into scripture, but just reading scripture and letting the text stand on its own really does bring out the truth of God's word. Isn't that wonderful? Amen to that brother. It really does. And that's, yeah, that's exactly, it's a great analogy. It's exactly what happened to me on this whole issue. Hey, what do you think? Do most of our hearers understand these different positions or would a brief description of them and explanation be, be helpful? Yeah, you know, I think um, I think we've got listeners from all over the spectrum. So I think, you know, some great um, definitions and just kind of throwing some things out there, maybe, um, you know, talking about uh, the places in Scripture where some of these things are um, found and, and pulled out would be, would be excellent. So, um, Steve, why don't you go ahead and start, uh, because you, this is where you kind of started anyway, with that term dispensational. All right, so there's dispensational premillennialism. Premillennialism means Jesus will come back before a thousand-year millennium. The dispensational view of premillennialism says uh, that there are seven great dispensations. A, a dispensation, here's their, their uh, definition, man, it was drilled into my head, I still remember it easily. <laughs> a dispensation is a distinct economy and the outworking of God's plan with the nation of Israel. That was their view. Everything that happens is to, all about the nation of Israel, and the church is a parenthesis in God's program with Israel. We're just a parenthesis in that view. So dispensationalists break it up into seven dispensations. We're in an oddball dispensation now, which where God has temporarily suspended his work with Israel, and he's working instead with this thing called the church, and later he'll be done with the church, he'll rapture it up off the earth, and then he'll return to his kingdom program with Israel, and we'll get down to real business. So that's kind of dispensationalism, and they tend to be, uh, they have a literal seven-year tribulation period before a literal thousand-year millennium, and they tend to be uh, a rapture occurs before the seven years of hell on earth, before the seven years of tribulation, though some of them are mid-trib and some of them are post-trib about their rapture. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of dispensational pre mill. Now, can I ask you something, Steve? Did that concept of God, uh, you know, rapturing us, even in the concept of like the tribulation, did that ever um, sit with you? Because when when I look at Scripture and I see Christ praying to keep us in the midst 
of the tribulation and the suffering that's going on on earth. I just, to me, I don't see a consistency in the end times where all of a sudden, you know, as believers, he's going to take us out of the worst possible <laughs> moments on earth. I mean, does, does that it was make pretty sense? pretty convenient, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I did believe it. I have to confess, I did believe it. You know, I got saved. I was, I was uh, immersed in this. This is all I knew. Sure. These are the only Christians I knew. And, and I swallowed it hook, line, and sinker without even thinking about it. Because, good grief, back in those days, the only thing I read was Road and Track magazine. Sure. Let's face it. So, uh, you know, yeah. I, I just I knew what everything would do zero to 60 in. That's it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I finally started reading, got my brain awakened, and started reading a lot of books, and uh, eventually ran into books that weren't dispensational pre-mill. Yeah, yeah. So Then there's also yeah. historic premillennialism. That's a, a better variety of pre-mill. Historic premillennialism just says, look, we think there's a, a thousand-year period, and for some of them, that's a literal 1,000 years, and for others of them, that's a, a long period of time. The thousand just stands for a long time. Like when we say, I'd give you a million bucks for that, which sure. means a lot, right? Sure. So they would say a thousand years just means a long time. And historic premillennialism does not have all those seven dispensations, does not have uh, this is all about Israel, and we're a temporary parenthesis, and God's outworking of this program with Israel. They just say... Look, here we are in the church age, and one day Jesus is going to come back, and then there will be a thousand years of his rule and reign on earth. Mm. Mm. Then the end. So I, I'm, I'd be way better with that position than I'm in than I am with the whole dispensational thing and yeah. all its. I want to say nonsense. I won't sure. say that though. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Then uh, want to move on to another? Yeah. Yeah. Let's keep going. Then there's post-millennialism, and there are several interesting varieties of this. Post-mill folks say, actually, the church will usher in the millennium, which will either be a literal thousand years or just a long time. The church will usher in the millennium by preaching the gospel and the Holy Spirit working in hearts, and there will be such a gospel movement, we might want to call it a revival, such a revival of biblical Christianity on the planet that uh, so many people will believe the majority of people on earth will, will be believers at that point, and there will be so many people on earth in those days, the population will be so much greater, that really, the, in the balance of time, more people will have believed than have not believed. So post-millennialism was a very optimistic, is a very optimistic view. The Church is going to usher in way better times, and uh, Jesus will come back at the end of that millennium that we usher in. Uh, post-millennialism was really popular among American evangelicals uh, in the late 18s and early 19s mm. when there was uh, there was peace on the earth. America yeah. was not at war. Yeah. And there was unprecedented like advancement, technological growth, medicine. Uh, the economy was getting better and better. And so there was this optimism. See, the world's getting better and better. Then World War One hit. Yeah, yeah. And post mill took a blow from World War One. It really did because yeah. oh, look at what a mess the planet is in. It's not getting better. Yeah. There's another variety of post mill that's more popular today than any other variety. Maybe uh, it actually has two pieces to it. It is called uh, uh, theonomic post millennialism. Theonomic means uh, these guys say we we want to reconstruct, or it's also called reconstructionism. We want to reconstruct the nation and the world according to God's law. So God's law, theonomy, uh, God's law rules over all things, civil, mm -hmm. ceremonial, moral law, as uh, interpreted by the New Testament. 
So they want to establish uh, God's kingdom on earth. There's another form of it that uh, that wants to take over, and this, I think this is laughable. Mm. I'm sorry, guys. If it's your position, I'm sorry. <laughs> I think it's laughable to imagine that this could happen. Their goal is we're going to take over the high ground for Christ. We're going to take over government. We're going to take over economics. We're going to take over the universities, uh, so education. We're going to take over, uh, what else? What is there? What's big? I can't even think of it. Anyway, we're going to take over all the big things and so usher in the kingdom. What happens is these guys in their journals, these guys in their books are always talking about economics and politics and law. There's the other one. We're going to take over law yeah. and education. They're all into that. And I really think they, like, they've lost the gospel, which ought to be the main thing we're talking about. Let's preach the gospel. Let's get people saved. I don't hear much of that from them. I rather hear, let's take over law. Yeah. Yeah. Which which is in my opinion laughable, but anyway, that's that's the version of post mill that's most popular at the moment. I think. Well, and what's interesting with that is we've actually, you know, we have seen society after society rise up on uh, the you know the platform of the Bible and rise up on this platform of you know the church taking over, and we see just how utterly horrible it fails. I mean. You know, the Catholic yeah. Church before uh, before the Reformation um, was the governing force. And I'm talking even before the whole corruption issues when the when the it was yeah. when the Catholic Church rose to power that it became corrupt and the need to split off then became a necessity in Luther's and, um, you know, many of the reformers eyes. And so, and we've seen that time and time again. I mean, that's what, you know, during the Middle Ages, the Crusades was. You had Christians in power who were like, oh, we need to go and get the Holy Land and we need to win it back for Christ. And, you know, as if Christ needs us to win anything for him. Um, you know, and so, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, to that's me, good. I feel like when when we are in power as believers, because we are humans and because we are depraved, um, then it goes to our heads um, and we think we're on some righteous quest, but the reality is um, we are, we are just as corrupt as the next guy, um, yeah, huh. you know, and we just tend to justify it in terms of, well, I'm, I'm doing this for Jesus or I'm doing this for God. And, huh. um, you know, and so, you know, again, that's not, I don't want to, you know, throw people off and be like, oh, you know, you shouldn't be in politics or anything like that. If you're a Christian or you shouldn't hold positions of power, if you're a Christian, I just, yeah, do not, you know, I just don't believe that that power was intended to go to believers. I don't think we see um, an example of that in the New Testament. Um, you know, even even looking back in Israel's history when they were a nation state and looking at all the Christian leaders, I mean, you look at David, who was called a man after God's own heart, and how corrupt that man was just because he was a human. Um, yep. You know, so so to me, you know, just saying, oh, you know, if Christians get in power, everything's going to be okay, is just a ridiculous notion, and you've never seen it once work throughout all of history. Yeah, amen to that. And and furthermore, and I'm sure, Nathan, I I think you'll agree with this, that uh, biblical Christianity is apostolic. Yes. Christ chose his apostles. The apostles told us 
what the church is, what the church does, what our mission is, how we carry it out. They laid it all down for us in the New Testament scriptures. Yes. And nowhere in the New Testament do we ever find any apostles saying, now look guys, we got to take over politics, right. we got to take over law, we got to take over the economy, right. we got to take over this, the educational institutions, because this is how we'll usher in the kingdom. There's not a word about that. Yeah. It's rather preach the gospel, you might get your head cut off, right. but oh well, Jesus is coming. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, good. Yeah. yeah, good thoughts. So that's that's post mill. Then the, then there's ah mill. Ah, <laughs> this is the refreshing part. <laughs> so the the ah the alpha primitive of course literally means there is no millennium. But mm-hmm. that's that's it's a pity that it got called that because ah mills don't believe there is no millennium. Mm-hmm. Ah mills believe we are in the millennium. It is a long period of time between mm-hmm. Christ's first coming. And Christ's second coming. Yeah. Just like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, here's what's going to happen, and then comes the end. Jesus returns, and then comes the end. A very simple eschatology. We're in a long time period. At the end of it, Jesus comes back. Yeah. So, uh, and, and Amil's believe that Satan is now bound. We get, we get, uh, ribbed about that. You know, like they say, well, he must be on a long chain. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, the, the text says Satan is bound that he should deceive the nations no more. Mm-hmm. So prior to Christ's coming, all the other nations beside Israel were basically in darkness, man. They were just yes. in darkness. Yeah. They were held and bound and deceived by the devil. Uh, after Christ's coming and the apostles started preaching and the nations were no longer bound because Satan was bound, he could no longer deceive them. Yes. Uh, they started receiving the gospel. How come we're over here in the United States of America, a long way from Israel, and thousands of years after Christ, and how come we're believers and we have churches and all that? Because Satan is bound that he should deceive the nations, the Goyim, all the Gentile people, yeah. no more. Yeah. So, uh, Amil position is, is very, very, very simple. Sure. Uh, post, post mills accuse us of being uh, they accuse all other views of being somewhat pessimistic and depressing. See, their view is the world's going to get better and better and better, either through preaching the gospel or through taking over the power stations on the earth. Uh, and they think we're pessimistic. No, we're just going to trudge along here till Jesus finally comes back. Right. Right. Um, well, I'm you know I'm not trying to make my view based on whether it looks optimistic or pessimistic. Right. I'm trying to make my view based on what does Scripture say. Yes, and I think Scripture says we're in a long period of time. Yeah, and uh, even evil men and imposters shall get worse and worse, and there will be bad times and there'll be good times. The entire age is characterized by two things: the constant spread of the gospel yeah. and the constant spread of evil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can count on both of those till yes. Jesus comes. Yes. Yeah. And I, and to me, I just, I think that's so good because I think when we look at scripture, that's, that's the model that we see, you know, and that, and again, going back to, you know, that's what Christ prays for us. Christ prays, you know, not that things are going to get better and better and better. And Christ doesn't pray that God would bring, you know, heaps of blessings upon us and make our way rosy and, you know, the rainbow road to the pot of gold at the end. He prays, you know, knowing that we're going to face trial and tribulation. And he prays that we would stand firm in the midst of it. And to me, that's the great hope and joy. It's not the bleakness of what's here and now. It's it's that I know things are so dark and so bleak. So I know that when Christ comes back, they're going to be that much better when he comes back. Yeah. Yeah. First the cross, then the glory. Yeah. 
and the glory is not till Christ comes back. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So some of the reconstructionist pre mills want the glory before Christ comes back. Yeah. Just, it's just not going to happen. By the way, uh, just to further uh, tantalize people who might consider amillennialism, some of the uh, popular theologians in our day who are amill would be guys like J.I. Packer. Mm-hmm. Anybody heard of him? Yeah, you heard <laughs> of him. He's amill. Uh, Michael Horton, you've heard of him probably. Uh, Anthony Hokema, who wrote the book I recommended. Oh, here's one. Everybody's got to love R.C. Sproul, right? You got to love the man. <laughs> yes. The man's just sweet, and you know he's he's old, and you got to respect him. And uh, R.C. Sproul's an Amil guy, so um, some pretty some pretty big names are Amil. That doesn't mean it's right, but right. it makes it worth looking at. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, and I'm I'm gonna kind of tip my hat a little bit, um, show my hand, as it were, um, because you and I were talking offline, Steve, and I really. Um, uh, you know, when I look at Revelation, um, I really I've come to the point where um, I view it. I, I try to put myself back in the time of uh, Daniel when Daniel is receiving these visions. Uh, first of all, you know, I find it interesting that people who talk about, you know, the literal interpretation of Revelation and all these things. And you all you have to do is look at prophetic um, scripture and see that it's never literally given anywhere at any time. It's always given in symbolism. Um, it's always given in imagery. And when Daniel is given, you know, his, his prophecy about the, the kingdoms that will rise and the kingdoms that will fall, he's given an image of this statue, um, and, and, you know, different parts of this statue being dashed to pieces and he's given an interpretation of what that will look like or what that that is but he's never given specifics he was never told it was going to be you know the persian empire is going to be this and then the roman empire is going to be this and then this is this you know he's given it imagery he's told it's going to be empires they're going to rise they're going to fall um and and I really feel like when we look at revelation we see a lot of the same type of things going on first of all I don't see just one you know, prophetic foresight into the future. I think revelation is just a swirling imagery of creation, the fall, God's redemption, and the consummation of all those things. And I think we're given those repeated themes all throughout the book of revelation. Um, And then again, but even with those things, I think some of the things that look more confusing are, Again, I put myself in Daniel's times, you know, Daniel receives this vision and he's given the interpretation, but I still have to imagine he didn't fully know what that would look like. And we know from history that he never lived to see what it would fully look like. Um, And so to me, you know, prophecy is always better understood in hindsight. (laughs) And we're going to best understand what all of those things mean um, at the end when Christ comes back and, you know, I think we're all going to sit around and we're going to have a gigantic laugh over it. Like, Oh, I thought it meant this. Uh, the, I was so wrong. And you yeah, know, I even wonder, you know, the book of revelation is so, I don't know. I say it with respect. I say it honorably. It's so weird and complex yeah. and strange that, uh, can anybody really understand a lot of it until it happens? Yeah. Until Christ comes. Yeah. However, I will put in a plug for another book. Yes. Maybe one of the, maybe one of the best commentaries ever written. I, 
I heard a pastor friend of mine in Northern Ireland actually complaining about this book because he said, it's so long, and it is a <laughs> massive volume on the book of Revelation. By the way, it's by G.K. Beale, and it's titled simply The Book of Revelation. Mm. It is, uh, like I forget, seven or 800 pages wow. on the book of Revelation, lots of footnotes, lots of explanations. It, I'm not recommending everybody run out and buy it. It would take you years just to read through the thing. But uh, it is an amazing commentary. I just highly recommend it. It is maybe the most thorough commentary on any book of the Bible I've ever seen. That's great. That's great. So, um, Steve, wanna um, you know? I want to be uh, aware of your time because I know you're on vacation. So I don't want to hold you too long from uh, your family and your your rest. But um, you know, just <laughs> want to get some last minute thoughts from you on um, on this topic. You know, just some things I know. Um, you had kind of, you knew we were going to be uh, doing this. And so I know you have some things that um, you had kind of written and jotted down. Um, or, you know, any, uh, any kind of final things that you want to throw out there regarding um, eschatology? Yeah, I actually do have something. Glad you asked. <clears throat> we didn't rehearse this ahead of time, folks. So uh, glad Nathan asked that question. Um, eschatology is always given in Scripture for a purpose. Mm. And the purpose is never to give you intellectual fodder to attack your friends with, mm. uh, to give you a subject to debate over, to give you something where you can pile up a lot of knowledge about a lot of views. It's always something very practical. To the Thessalonians, it was so comfort one another with mm. these words. Um, the book of Revelation was written probably for that same purpose. People were being were suffering, they were being persecuted, they're being fed to lions, they're being hung up in Nero's parties and lit on fire to give light to his party. Uh, it was just a bad, bad time. And the book of Revelation is written to encourage them, hey, there's victory ahead, man. Mm. You know, now the cross, later the crown and the glory, hang in there, Jesus is with you. So um, I'd like to say, you know, believe that Jesus is coming again Get busy, man. Preach the gospel. People mm. need to know about him. Preach the gospel. Lead people to Christ. Invite people to your church. And be comforted in your sufferings. Be comforted when a loved one dies in the arms of Jesus. Mm. Uh, they're, they're with him in glory. That's where they are. Mm. So it's for a purpose, and the purpose is not so we can fight each other. Yeah. Yeah, I love, I love how you said that, because... Uh, how many times was Paul writing letters because the church was fighting with one another and, you know, he's writing to, you know, to, to draw them closer and to make peace. And those same letters we use to fight one another. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that amazing? Wow. So, well I, said. yeah, I, I love, I love how you said that, you know, use it, use it to, to make peace with one another, use it to, uh, you know, comfort one another. And, you know, I mean, it, it would be foolish to say, you know, I, I tell my students this all the time. I, I love America. I am, I am so thankful that I am an American. I'm so thankful that I live in America, that I was born in America. Um, but it's not perfect. And, and I think it's important that yeah. we acknowledge that and that we admit that this is not a perfect nation. And that's okay because there will never be a perfect nation until Christ yeah. returns and is reigning over his sanctified, perfect people. Um, Amen to that. So, yeah, thank you yes, so sir. much for the word, Steve. Uh, and great. And, I mean, you know, we're, uh, we are. We're just running down on time. And so, um, you know, this is such a huge topic. I envision that we will probably pull others in and, and give a chance to 
um, you know, hear different thoughts and opinions. Um, again, you can go over and listen to Travis Finley's podcast, uh, Rethinking Revelation. Uh, listen to Chris Date and some of the stuff that he has out there on uh, some of these things with end times and hell, um, you know, and just different views from people who uh, love Jesus, who love the word and just have a different, um, different thought on it. So, um, you know, always love getting different perspectives. Good stuff, Nathan. It's been a good time, man. Yeah, it's been excellent. Thank you so much, Steve. Well, we're going to go ahead and um, sign off. Steve, we just rocked the Casbah. We rocked it. These go to 11.